We're going to go ahead and dive into uh, Numbers chapter 21 on to the promised land. And we're really, in this lesson, um, walking our way to the third part of Numbers. Numbers is in three segments. If you have that um, timeline that we had from the Bible Project, it's, it is in three geographical movements. And so we're right here coming into 21 there's a lot that happens, actually, as we get to 22. So before we get to 22, it seems like it's one snake story and then we're on, but it, it's really not. Really critical things take place here in 21 that, that set the precedent, that, that give us, and you'll notice everyone is a picture of, as we walk through 21, it's a picture of grace and it's a picture of grumbling and it's a picture of provision and then possession. So we're going to kind of come to like an overview and get to the the plains of Moab, which would be across from Jericho, and that's going to be the entry point for Joshua as he comes in, right? He goes to the walls of Jericho, and there's a reason for it. Uh, but as we start the chapter, we're actually going to wander up into Canaan, into the Negev. We're going to have an attack on Israel. Uh, they're going to pray, and we're going to see some defeat take place, and then kind of come back around. I want to remind us of a couple things to keep in mind is that we're dealing mainly with the next generation. So as we see them grumble, uh, as we talk about that, and you deal with the serpent on the, on the pole, which is referenced in John 3, 14 and 15, uh, we're talking about the, mainly the next generation of people. So as we dive into chapter 21, we're, we've walked through the death of Miriam. We've seen the rebellion of Moses. And I just want you to put it in context for a second. He has wandered that 120 years. He's at the end, and he rebels at the end with that act of striking the rock, which stole the glory from God, but also was an act of disbelief in God because he emphasized the magic stick in himself. He emphasized me, and he says the word we because he's talking for Aaron himself. And so we see his rebellion, and the punishment is given for that. And we walk through the loss of Aaron. Aaron dies on the tap of Mount Hor, and he's buried there. And along with that, Edom has refused passage uh, through the land. And, and I put up um, a map. I found this in, it's the Zondervan Bible Atlas, and it's, uh, one, it's in color, which helps me. <laughs> so sometimes these old atlases, it's harder to read. I love this map, and I have a copy of it. Oh, I went too far. Heavy fingered there. Um, I love this map because, and it might be too far away to read, and again, if you need a copy, I have one up here. But it shows you a little bit of what's taking place. Because I'll be honest, I'm reading through chapter 21, and, and I'm going through a bunch of maps that are in different commentaries. I'm like, it doesn't make sense why they did some of the moves until this map. When I found this map, it really kind of highlighted something. And, and the key thing, actually, for me was the fact that you got this horizontal run of the King's Highway, which runs through Edom. And then you understand where they went and where they went back to. So you see Israel in this area, and then they're going to ask permission of Edom to cross this highway and then go up. And Edom's going to refuse. So Edom has refused them passage from here over this way. So that's very helpful to understand when you get to the part when they're grumbling, because they're going to go all the way back down and loop up. But before they do that, they're actually going to go into Canaan where they were supposed to go 40 years ago and, and get attacked by this king of Arad who's going to come down and over. And so there's this little bit of interesting interaction that takes place in Canaan as we go. And this, this chapter here is uh, a lot of frustration and failure with the new generation. Uh, they're going to attack God's goodness and purpose when they grumble. Their attack on God is very nasty. Uh, they attack Moses and God for what they're doing. They're the next generation, some and majority of which wouldn't even remember Egypt, and they're saying they want to go back to Egypt. They make derogatory remarks about manna, and some of them may have only eaten manna all their life. And so there's an ugliness to what they say. And this transitional chapter, though, Israel is going to move all the way around. And so what we're going to do in this chapter is literally go up all the way back down and we'll end up up here when we're done fighting some different battles. And so this is preparing to enter the land of Canaan. 
It's going to get us to the place where the rest of Numbers unfolds. All of Deuteronomy is a recap, and it only gets us to the plains of Moab and what takes place there. And in this process, before they really enter the land of Canaan to capture it, we're going to see them pick up, through God's sovereign grace, extra land that's not in the land of Canaan. So the chapter begins with this first battle. And I like to place things, and I originally thought I would just move my hands around and say left, right, and then it doesn't help you at all. So um, we're in the Negev. This is southern Canaan. So just in your mind, realize that we don't know exactly where this king attacked. We do know this from the passage that this, they're going with what the land that the spies took. The spies went straight up and straight back down. And the whole nation of Israel, and we don't know why, we don't understand, Scripture doesn't tell us this, they've decided to go into Canaan the same way. And what takes place is in the first three verses of chapter 21 is what I call a picture of grace. And so I'm going to read those verses. And when King Arad the Canaanite, which dwelt in the south, heard tell that Israel came by the way of the spies, and that's a translation of a Hebrew word that has different connotations, but most people lead to atherim, it's antherim or atherim, and ramamim is spies, and people say it's a, it's a spin on the word what the spies took. And so you think a north-south route. He hears they're in the land, and, it, and he says he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. And Israel vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord hearkened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities, and he called the name of the place Hormah. And that's important because that word means destruction. It's the name of the city. You go all the way back into Numbers, and Hormah wasn't called Hormah then. Hormah is where they met their first defeat. So when, when Israel was supposed to go into the land, the spies spy it out, so here, and, and most commentators think that the king of Arad did a sneak attack, so he came down to get them. They didn't go up to him. Obviously, they would have been halfway up to the journey and probably would have kept going. So he's come down hearing about them being there, which makes sense. Two million people are going to make a lot of noise. They're all around this area here, and so they'll know to come attack. Um, what's happened is there's going to be a big battle, and there's going to be destruction. And Hormah is where 40 years prior, when Israel was told, hey, great, you're going to wander the wilderness for 40 years. That's your punishment. Remember, they decided to repent and then disobey God and try to take the promised land themselves. Hormah is where they were defeated. They were pushed out. I think it was 15,000 or 27,000. It's hard to remember the numbers, but 14 to 27,000 people died in that battle. And so what we're seeing here is a picture of grace. It is a mini picture of what the conquest would entail. Israel would need to rely upon the Lord for victory, but when placing their faith in him, they would see his victory, and then they would accomplish his purpose. They are not going to inhabit, and this is a critical thing. We're going to watch them fight over here. They don't destroy the cities. They inhabit a lot of the cities. Here, they're saying we're not going to stay. We're going to destroy the cities completely. We're going to just take them down to the ground. Because we're, we're dedicating them to destruction, which is what God would want them to do. And so they're saying to God, we're going to do what you want. We're not trying to gain. We're going to destroy. It's committed completely to God. And so this king of Arad in the southern portion of the Negev, and, and again, many people think that as they began their journey, when they're told they can't go here, they, they work their way in here. Obviously, they're trying to think of a way to not go into Edom. And in some sense, you'd think, okay, Edom is here, that maybe they're trying to do a loop up to come back around to get in center. I don't know, because Scripture doesn't say this, but this is the southern part of Canaan. God wanted them to enter in the middle. There's an advantage to entering in the middle, and you'll see that with Joshua's conquest, because Joshua goes in, annihilates, and annihilates. And what does that prevent? It prevents this stacking feeling, right? If Israel starts from the bottom and is winning and then all these kings know about it, what can happen? They can all get together, and it's like a domino effect that will come crushing down. Now, God can do whatever he wants and conquer them, but God wanted them to come in the middle and hit, and strategically, you've split Canaan, and you can deal with both sides at, at will, so to speak. You make it so they can't all pile up. 
So they're coming in here, and this king just comes in and attacks, and so now we have them coming and saying, what can we do? What's taking place? And there's some important parts of verses 1 through 3 that Israel needs to set them up. And I put two words down. One is recognition by Israel. And again, this might be a little, I went too, here we go. I've gone too far. That's my problem. Yeah, picture of grace. Now, now I'm where I thought it would be. <laughs> so just if you're ever wondering if I should operate the computer, the answer is absolutely not. <laughs> it did it again. Well, well, this is a fun, uh, all right, we'll go with that. We'll just keep backing up. It might be that. I should probably stop eating candy when I play with my iPad. That's it. All right. I think it's Bob doing something. He's just, you know, he set some gimmick computer trick, and he has a remote. Someone's got a remote. It's Theron over there, and he's laughing the whole time. <laughs> click, click. He's like, ah, we got him. So we get this picture of grace, and why is that? And there's two things that take place here that I think is, is important and actually sets the framework for the con- conquest is recognition by Israel of need. They're in Canaan, and, and again, I think the idea is to go up above Edom and to cross in that way. And they realize that they need God. They cannot do this on their own. They're not capable. But then there's a second part that's, I think, equally important when it comes to recognizing need, and it's the recognition by Israel of God's ability. This plays out in normal life and regular life for us, for us as well. Uh, we tend to go into life overconfident, and then we don't need God necessarily. He's just, he's just someone we worship. This is who we are. We, uh, we get kind of like our adjectives from God. We're Christian, but it's not Christian by identity. I call it Christian by adjective. It's just one of the descriptive features of my life. I'm a Christian, but I'm also all these other things, instead of it being my identity in Christ. And, and there comes a point in time in most people's lives where they recognize that there's need. There is something they can't overcome. Oftentimes, it's disease and death. Those two are these uh, equalizers, right? You can be the most wealthy person in the world, but if you get pancreatic cancer, uh, you're no different than, than the, the other person that has pancreatic cancer. You're both staring at death, and you're going to be battling the same thing. One, you might be more comfortable because you have more money and more medicine, but you're, you're, you're facing the same end. And it, it will break us down to where we see need, but just because we see need doesn't mean we see God's ability or that we rest in his ability. And here with Israel is this idea that they encounter this problem, and then they see that they cannot handle it on their own, and they go to God and they, and they say to God, please rescue us, we know you can, and when we will dedicate to destruction, or we will give everything to you. Nothing will be taken. So the soldiers are not taking loot from these cities. To devote it to destruction means that whatever sheep are there, they're killed and burned. Whatever gold there is gone. It is not for them at all. It's, it's for God completely. And what they're seeing is, and, and it's one of the first times we recognize that they have a need, but that they are God's people, the God who has the ability to accomplish this. So Israel in this moment captures the essence of what the conquest will be. That they're about to enter a promised land where they are needy for God's help. They are not capable in and of themselves. They might have a lot of people. They might have some really good warriors. But when it comes to taking all of Canaan and all all its kingdoms, they don't have what it takes. There's need, and God is able. And so what we're seeing is dependence upon God, who is forever dependable. He's trustworthy. And so to top it all off, when they attempted to enter Canaan 40 years prior, like I mentioned, they were defeated at Hormah. And in all honesty, what are we seeing? God rectifying the defeat of the past, wiping it out, taking the loss off the record. You lose to these people 40 years ago, and now you destroy them. And so where they felt defeat when they relied completely upon themselves, now they recognize need, and God gives them victory in his ability. Defeat is erased. They now are moving forward. God is at work And he's made that obvious to Israel. However, 
As I mentioned, the ultimate plan is not to conquer Canaan working south to north. Instead, they were called to come into Canaan at the middle. This is what God wants. Now, you might say, well, why didn't he, why didn't he do that the last time? That wasn't what God wanted the last time. Forty years has gone by, and so God wants them. There's the map again. Well, <laughs> apparently, this is, we're going to leave it there. Well, well it comes again. <laughs> this is fun. Um, this game, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to have some, there we go. Well, if it moves, we'll just work with it. I can just talk really fast. So God wants them to go up. Edom doesn't want them to cross. What does that involve? Backtracking. Have you ever driven in the wrong direction for hours? And then you realize it? I'm glad. I haven't either. Um, but here's the best thing. My brother-in-laws have, which is like, that's a gift from God, isn't it? Like, like, it's like forever I can go back, say, remember when you were in college and you drove south when you were coming home north? And I said multiple times, said, how, how many times did you not look at the signs? I remember all these words because I'm in my early 20s. I'm married to their sister. And I'm like, how come you took a 16-hour drive and turned it into 36? I, I don't know why you did this. Um, I've shared my brother Billy and his driving to Virginia Beach down the wrong road and, and the, the lesson learned between state highway and interstate, but my brother-in-laws literally went the wrong direction. Now, in their defense, at least the defense they gave, at Lexington in Kentucky, it's confusing. And I said, well, at some point you got to read the signs. You know, that's important. Um, and when you start seeing south, you know something's wrong or west, either one. You're going northeast, you know. I didn't let it die. It was great. They were home for Christmas break. That was like, the, like, you know, you ask for something on your Christmas list, and then you get something even better, and that was it, you know. And so, but you're frustrated, right, when you turn around if you've gone the wrong way. And, and I say I've never done it. I've never gone a long time the wrong direction. I used to deliver uh, in a straight truck for the greenhouse when I was way too young to be doing that. Uh, 17, 18, 19, and I remember I did not want to be in traffic ever, but being in traffic going the wrong way is torture, and then it's torture to be in traffic going the wrong way and looking over and seeing traffic and thinking, I'm moving the wrong way and need to go back through that nightmare. Uh, and sometimes when you're going 60 and you see them going 10, and you just think, can this truck make it through the ditch? I need, I need to do this now. I, I say that because I want to build a little bit of the tension that Israel is going to start feeling. We came up here. We've had some people captured. We just annihilated these cities. We gave them back to God. And then we go back all the way. And, and this is an important word, way of the Red Sea. They're going back to the start of the Exodus. It's not fun might be healthy ultimately. So they're going to go all the way down and they're going to go back all the way on the eastern side of Edom because Edom has given that land and God's not going to let that take place. And here is a portion of, of numbers that is connected to the New Testament in a very dramatic way because John uses this. And this, this is how God is helping us understand the cross. And so we're, we're seeing a tie in here. So I'm going to look at verses four through nine. I call this an ugly picture of grumbling because ultimately, see if I can do this one time. I cannot. There, I did. Nope, I didn't. Yeah, this is going to be it. Nah, by the way, next week, there's no camera, and there's definitely not going to be a slideshow presentation uh, for me to fight. There we go. Picture of grumbling, and it's a pretty ugly one. Um, I'm going to read four through nine. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea. In other words, going down to compass the land of Edom. So we're going all the way back down Edom and going around. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And that's just the way this is wording it, but what you get the idea. To the core of who they are, they're discouraged because of the direction they're going. And it's the road to the Red Sea. The Red Sea is what they crossed miraculously conquering Egypt and seeing their defeat. And we're going all the way back down to that point so we can go around Edom. And this people spake against God 
and against Moses, which is a unique statement. Usually they're speaking against Moses and Aaron, and God says, you're speaking against me. Now it says they spoke against God, and they included Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? They're blaming the right person, at least. Let's give them credit for that. They're blaming God. Um, for there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. We hate manna. I hate it. The word light, and it can be translated as useless bread. Light, the word in Hebrew is light, like it can be airy. It's hard to know because the context of that Hebrew word could be useless. It could be, it doesn't have enough substance. It, we're sick and tired of it. Or it could just mean it's airy. But uh, obviously these translators chose light. By the word loath, I'm thinking they, they're, they're just hating it. This, it's just awful. Um, the only illustration I can give is... Uh, I am a big fan of chicken noodle soup, um, but I'm picky, so I want chicken noodle soup a certain way. Heather has perfected the recipe. Like, it's amazing. So two or three days ago, she says, I found in this recipe, we always like, there's this other chicken noodle soup recipe, and right away, I'm like, yeah, should you really do that? Um, and she's like, I'm not replacing the recipe, and by the way, I don't, to understand how much I like chicken noodle soup, when given the option, I want chicken noodle soup. I don't care if I've eaten chicken noodle soup six days in a row. And you say, there's chicken noodle soup and or other soup that I like, chicken noodle soup. Anytime there's an option, I'm going chicken noodle. So she's talking about this. They're squeezing some lemons in it. It smells good. It's in the crock pot. And uh, I remember getting a bowl. Everything smells great. I put the first bite in my mouth, and I'm like, poof. When am I going to tell Heather this is awful? This is, I, I hate it. I, I, I hate it. I don't like it at all. And it's not real chicken noodle soup. And now it just, what am I going to do? And there's an appropriate time to tell someone you don't like the food, right? Every husband's learned that one. Um, and it's definitely not while eating. That's, I've learned that too, that you don't say that while eating. And I'm thinking, boy, you know, and the kids usually take the bullet for me because, you know, they're outspoken like, oh, I don't like this. But they always say it. So I'm like, oh, where is this going to go? And I was just a little disappointed. Well, let's be honest, a lot disappointed. Um, and I'm eating it, and Heather says while she's sitting next to me, she's like, oh, what, this will definitely replace the other recipe. And I knew then she was joking because no one in their right mind would think that. And I said, yeah, it's awful, right? It's, this, is, this is bad. And it's weird because it smelled so amazing, uh, but when you don't put chicken bouillon in, it just doesn't work, right? And so we didn't even make the kids finish. I mean, this was, we didn't even give it to the dogs. Like, this is, this is... It's gone. It's not like it's unedible. It's just, boy, it's hard. And that's how I would describe how they feel about that light bread, right? This is where we're at. Uh, they hate it, you know, and I'm still disappointed. I'm still talking about it. This is still coming up. This is still part of, like, I'm already disappointed that I can't go home and eat chicken noodle soup. This is where I am in life uh, at the moment. I loathe that chicken noodle soup that we had a couple days ago or yesterday. I wish it was further in the past. I wish I was gone when they made it. See, this is where I'm at, but they loathe it. That's what that word means. They hate it so much that they're not thinking about what it was. Because what was manna? Yeah. And it was life. Because without manna, they would be what? Dead. Gone. Not existing. And it goes on. And so, and the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Now, who's dying? It's actually the newer. The older are almost gone. This is 40 years. We're moving up. Now, there could be a few left because there's time to get rid of a few more. I'm sure the snake's got some old people. I think they move slower. My dad's moving all right, but he's still slower than I am. You know, he got his new knee today. And so I got lots of texts. got a video of him walking. So, he, yeah, apparently they put plastic in your body, and you can just go right away. I told him I could have put a PVC pipe right there for him. He could have rolled right up. For a but he, he didn't want to take it, you know what I mean? So... We all try to give him a hard time. My brother Bobby said, what do you want for your last meal? And I was saying, hey, you enjoying walking? And he's like, why are you guys saying this to me? And I said, well, because we want to scare you. Why not? This is payback, you know. But either way, he's doing well. That's my way of saying he's doing well. I don't know why I got on that tangent. Oh, old people moving slower, possibly, than that. They're going to get bit by snakes. And so they're getting bit by snakes, and they're fiery serpents. And it doesn't mean that they're breathing fire. It means that their bite causes inflammation, and it causes death. Um, some commentators talk about that area still having poisonous snakes, and I kind of sit there and wonder, because most people go and say, oh, that area had poisonous snakes, and I'm thinking, that area now has poisonous snakes. 
probably didn't before, thanks to Israel. It has venomous snakes now sitting in there. And so they get bit, and then the people come to Moses and said, and said, we've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against thee. And it's fascinating because this is a big change. They're admitting their sin while facing the consequences of it. They're recognizing that sin is against God first and foremost, and it's against Moses, which would be Psalm 51. David's going to say that. I've sinned against thee. And we're thinking, well, you murdered a guy and you stole his wife. That would have been sin. But he recognizes sin against God. And so he moves on and he goes and says, pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and most likely brass there should have been translated copper, which had been the pure metal. Um, they found copper snakes before. People have copied this uh, as they go down through the ages. And put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a certain had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived." And I want you to notice, what do the people ask for? Take away the serpents. And God said, look at the brass serpent. The serpents are still biting. And as we come and see from this text, going south, back toward the Red Sea, after you wandered for 40 years, provided the perfect opportunity to rebel and demean God. They fell prey to seeing life from their point of view and not God's point of view. And any time that you do that, you can be sure things will look off. And I want us to understand the first lesson that comes out of this. The lesson theologically is, is very deep, and it goes right to Christ. But the lesson coming in life that we see here is from my perspective, this is Israel, this is a waste of time. I don't know why God didn't work out another way. I'm frustrated by the fact that I'm going further south than my ancestors did to loop around a nation that's being difficult so that we can enter the promised land. We were just in the promised land and we just beat King Arad. In the south, we just erased the defeat. It's like losing in the Super Bowl in a, in a superficial way and then the next year beating the same team that you lost to. We've erased the stigma of defeat. Why in the world are we going down to come back up? And when you start seeing things from your perspective, things will look off, and that's important. And then here's the second thing. Satan will fully capitalize on that selfish viewpoint. And what do we find here in a picture of grumbling? Rejection by Israel of God's plan. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? This is ridiculous. I don't get it, and it's horrible. And then we have to think in a second, do we do the same thing? Is this how we'll interact with God when things don't seem right? And then rejection by Israel of God's provision. We hate your life. Because that's what manna was. Sustenance. Provision. Life. We hate it. And then as you move through it, God sends a consequence, and it's fiery serpents. And notice something different. What happens all the time when, when Israel's sinning? We would usually see Moses and Aaron fall on their knees, and then Moses would tell Aaron, go do X, and it's either take incense and be in between them or do something else. These are the last things we've seen. And a lot of times the people would fight back against it. They didn't even care, but there would be a, a salvation a rescue that took place without any, any type of petition or movement. That's not what happens. The people, first now, there's a recognition by Israel of their sin. And I hope you're seeing a little bit what's taking place, is that in this scenario, God is not, nor is Moses, able to swoop in and create a rescue situation that is unacknowledged or unpetitioned. Now Israel is saying, huh, we're dying because of our sin. We've sinned against God, and we've sinned against you. Please pray for us. And then we see something unique. Moses prays, and then there's a period. It's done. The sentence ends. And it's then that God comes back out and says, great, make on a pole 
a snake. Now, it's fascinating. Snakes represent evil. Now, not in Egyptian culture and not in some other cultures. They used it for life. So it's one of the most interesting symbols that God could pick. But notice that they don't touch the serpent, that they don't pray to the serpent, that God says, hold this up on a pole, and he doesn't remove snakes. If you get bitten, then you look at that, and it's a certain type of looking. And, and what happened is, Israel recognizes their sin, but they also have to recognize God's solution. They needed to look in faith toward the serpent that was placed on the pole. An interesting object to have, because what was the consequence of their sin? They, they rebelled against God, and God sent what? Snakes that bit and killed them. What's the consequence of sin? Death, right? So held up in front of Israel is the consequence of sin. Now, this is referenced in John 3, uh, 12 through 15, or 13 through 14, 15, whatever it is. I, I wrote it down. Uh, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, this is God, this is Christ speaking to Nicodemus, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then you got the famous John three sixteen. Uh, Gordon Wenham writes this, Men dying in sin are saved by the man suspended on the cross. What is Jesus doing on the cross? What's happening on the cross? What happens? He's dying. What are the wages of sin? Death. We look to the cross, and what are we staring at every time we see the cross? Death, the consequence. He's paying it. And Israel had to stare at what? The consequence. What was there? And the one paying, so when we stare at the cross, we've seen the one paying the consequence of sin. And then he wrote on, Gordon Wenham continued, just as physical contact was impossible between those bitten by snakes and the copper snake, so sinners are unable to touch the life-giving body of Christ. We don't go to Christ and physically touch his body, do we? No. But in both situations, the sufferers must appropriate God's healing power themselves by looking at the copper snake or believing in the Son of Man. And I want you to see something unique in the redemption that takes place with Israel with the serpent. And this is the critical one. It is not corporate. The healing was individual. Now, when Korah did what he did, Moses runs with incense and he stands in the gap. He stands in the gap and everyone dies, in essence, behind him, and he stops the wrath there. But in this situation, they're not given some corporate movement or division. Get behind the snake. Whoever's behind the snake lives. If you're in front of the snake, you're dead. No. You must individually, when bitten, death, look with faith at what God has provided. It was individual, not corporate. It was not the high priest running in the middle. Instead, it was personal faith and submission of casting your eyes to see in faith the solution provided by God. Thus, Nicodemus, the scribe, the lawyer, and we use the lawyer in the tense that we think they're in a courtroom. Lawyer would be someone who's an expert in the law and the Torah. So he's an expert in this. So you can imagine when Jesus says, you're going to have to look at the Son of Man lifted up like the serpent in the, what? The serpent? The Suddenly, our illustrations get, get crossed, but it's confronting his wrong view of what the Messiah was going to come do. The Messiah was going to go be the consequence that you had to look for for forgiveness. And so Jesus uses that illustration to help him understand what faith was. What was the one thing in Israel that you read in the Gospels that they assume or presume upon God for? They are Israelites, and so therefore they are saved. But here in Numbers, you have no corporate rescue. You get bitten, you're dying, you must look at the serpent. Nicodemus is here, an expert in the law, and the lawyers are thinking, we're sons of Abraham. We are God's people. Of course we're redeemed. And Jesus is saying, no you're not. It must be through Christ. And so when I talked last week about John, John is a very focused uh, gospel, uh, he doesn't give us the luxury of general faith. You have to look to Christ 
for salvation. He makes that perfectly clear. Well, this is the picture for Israel of that as well. By the way, historically, Hezekiah destroys this actual serpent on a pole because Israel began to worship as an idol the serpent on a pole, which was never its purpose. So if you ever wonder, well, I think back then God was giving, and no, he wasn't. He was actually painting a very graphic illustration for the people there. And so when the nation twisted and started using it as an idol, instead of the lesson of faith, it was destroyed by a man who was right with God and took care of it. But I want to delve a little bit into the sin committed and how that tends to unfold in our life. Because I actually think the, the theological weight sits in this passage, but there's a very practical weight that comes in here. Um, I'm going to give us a little rundown of what can happen. When we see things from our own perspective and timetable, when life is viewed from my selfish view, my box, or your selfish box, then we tend to blame things on God and His servants. We go to God and say, you messed up. What's going on? Why? Because I have, I have my, I'm seeing things my way. I'm selfish. And then we demean what God has done. And as believers, when we get so boxed into our perspective and our timetable, the end result is not that we just blame God. But what did they do to God? I hate your life. I hate what you've done. We demean what God has done. Sound weighty to do that? The first step doesn't seem so bad, right? Just seeing things from my viewpoint. Why doesn't everybody? Don't you see life from your viewpoint? I definitely see life from my soup viewpoint, right? I mean, I'm I'm vested. In this soup. I know what my mother would have said to me. There are starving kids. <laughs> We've all heard it, right? And I know one thing. My mother would not have thrown that soup away. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Not breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We would have been eating that soup. So much that we would have liked it. <laughs> right? But I am, in my perspective, see, it doesn't seem like a big deal, right? My perspective doesn't seem like a big deal. But if you belong to God, if your identity is Christ, then you don't have the luxury of seeing things from your perspective. Because when you see things from your perspective, you'll blame God and you'll demean what God has done. Our world sees things from their perspective. What does our world do in response to God? When things go wrong, it's his fault, because evil is now God's responsibility, but they don't want to believe in a supreme absolute. So it's one of the most ridiculous arguments someone can make logically. I don't believe in God because I see evil. Well, that's stupid. There's no evil without God. Because there has to be an absolute standard. What makes something wrong? What makes a murderer wrong, right? A murderer is wrong because we set the standard of life. Who sets that standard? God does. Because the murderer can say, I think murdering is good. Because there's no standard. So in other words, people argue. So they'll blame God. They'll find some way and they'll demean God. Now, I want to carry this to a street level. How do we put safeguards or changes in to prevent this from happening to us? And I want to throw out this idea to learn a, a very practical lesson. And that's first and foremost to be aware and to be discerning of our own perspectives. How easy it is to not see things God's way. And I and when, I, when I'm thinking about it, and how quick does that happen? Well, we're not seeing it from God's perspective. And then I put a second practical step. When you mentally, and look, let's be honest. You're sitting here, and I would assume most of you aren't going to vocalize an attack on God. But will your mind go there? Have you ever been frustrated with God? You don't, I know you haven't vocalized it. Don't raise your hand because no one's going to want to do that. Where you just, there's a sense of, of that that comes out. And we're good enough Christians not to tell anyone else. And I want to throw out that, that one of the safeguards or street level changes is that when we hear ourselves in some way undermining God's goodness and what he's done, any fabric of that, that we have an alarm go off in our brain and say something's wrong here, something's off. 
I know in, in different realms of life that the, those alarm bells are what is going to prevent Satan's swoop in, right, to carry us down a path from which we struggle to return. Because if we don't hear the alarm and say, ah, something's off here, and what do you do when something's off, right? Everything you're about ready to go blow up, you stop lighting matches, right? You stop, you put it away, and you say, wait a second, I've got to see this right. And where do we see things right? We go back to God's Word. We go back, and what does God's Word drive us to? It drives us to that right perspective. But you see how easy it is to just slip off that road? Suddenly my perspective gets off, and suddenly I'm thinking in a way that is frustrated or grumbling at God. And sometimes we'll cloak that by grumbling about some component of the faith or some other people or whatever it may be. But we see this, and when we recognize, oh, no, I'm grumbling against God. I'm questioning Him because life isn't like I want. I'm not wanting to go the way of the Red Sea. That's not what I want. And so we, we will drive in. And so there's two kind of heavy lessons that come out of that portion and we see the cross depicted, and we see Christ using that to teach Nicodemus, a very critical chapter 3 coming up, which John is going to hint to uh, this Sunday. We're going to be touching on this idea of salvation that is, is amplified in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. But also we're seeing a propensity in our own lives to be driven by ourselves and then to ultimately attack God. Now, the chapter continues with the march around Edom, and I don't have a watch on, which is always a dangerous thing for someone like myself. It's 8 o'clock. There we go. Um, there we go. Too far. Um, stop. Yeah, it's spoken command. Uh, and the next portion of this chapter, I call it a picture of provision, because uh, verses 10 through 20, and, and I'm not going to read it uh, just because we're going to run out of time if I do, but picture of provision. I want you to think about how we've moved so far, where it's, you know, put the tabernacle up, it takes some time, we could be here a week, we could be here a day, it could take us two weeks, we could grumble, we could not get anywhere. And then when you move through 10 through 20, Israel moves like rapid fire moving up. And in all honesty, if I'm looking, when I, when I view the map, mentally, <laughs> this, is, this is fun, um, I've always resist throwing electronics. I always say at some point, you just got to put that down and leave the room or give it to your child who you'd never trust with it before. Like, here, Clayton, hold this. You're better than your dad right now at this moment. Um, it looks like we turn the corner and you see the grumbling here because all along the way, and, and it, the, these cities are referenced like Basra and there's some other cities that reference like tucked this way a little bit more. But most commentators feel that they stayed in the desert the whole way. But probably referencing this, you'll start seeing them camp, 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 and they work their way up. And just for the sake of time, I'm not going to touch it, but here's basically what happens. Movement from Kadesh goes all the way down to Edom, and we're seeing complaining. They, they, the, the complaint nestles in this downward motion. But as they move up, they move fast. The text just moves so quickly. There's no long pauses. Instead, what we catch in the middle of this is poems of God uh, as a warrior. Now, the first poem is said to be from the book of the wars of the Lord, which there's no book. No one has that book that's gone, but it's referenced in here. And then there's a poem that uh, is very, very difficult to translate. There is minimal agreement on how it should unfold it is not the most clear one. Um, it says, Wherefore, to set in the book of the wars of the Lord what he did in the Red Sea and in the brooks of Arnon and at the streams of the brooks that goeth down to the dwelling of Ar and lieth upon the border of Moab. And from thence they went to Beer. So it's, it's this poem. It doesn't have any rhyme. It doesn't have Hebrew rhyme. It doesn't feel like it. Uh, some other commentators have worked through it and, and they've come up with an alternate look at it. But and I, I, I trust the people who say, sounds great, but there's no reason to make a change. We just can't quite get a grip on this poetry, but we're given the reference from the book of the wars of the Lord. And so what we understand is that he's referencing God as the warrior. And so they're starting to see God's hand moving up. And then we get another poem, which we kind of understand, and that's the one where it says, spring up, O well, sing ye unto it. The princes dig the well. The nobles of the people digged it by the direction of the lawgiver with their staves. 
And then it says they went to Matanah, and then they just moved to different regions around there. And what's interesting is we're seeing movement in a quick way. We're seeing a poem from the Book of the Wars of the Lord, which probably is the starting poem referencing there. And then there's followed by the joy of water provided. And there's something noticeably different in this travel sequence. One, no grumbling. And two, water is provided by a what? A well, right, that they did what to? They dug. So we see them rejoicing. When do they typically get water? What was Moses supposed to do the last time? <laughs> to a, doesn't provide water typically, right? Typically, I'm not drinking out of a rock. So what we see is a transition from grumbling, and then we see them actually digging a well and drinking from something they dug and then rejoicing in the Lord for his provision of water from a well that they dug. That's a big difference from, oh, God is horrible. I'm going to hit a rock and see water come out. And we start seeing a maturity here and actually a little bit of growth that takes place. And I put as a note, what a difference perspective makes. What a difference when we see God fighting for us and not think he fights against us. When we see the fruit of well digging as God's reward. The song doesn't say we're awesome for digging a well. They're rejoicing in the fact that they all participated in digging a well and God provided water from that. God brought fruit to their labor. And we're starting to see a growth, a movement in the right direction. Now they stand at the cusp of entry. They're almost to the plains of Moab. They're working up and then they're going to encounter um, two kings that they have to fight. And it's one is the land of the Amorites. And they do ask permission. Can we go through your land? And what do the Amorites do? Well, they do the same thing that Edomites did. And that's they come out and they attack them. But there's no other way to go. We got to get here and your land is in the way. Amorite land need to be in the plains of Moab. And theoretically, they're not supposed to take Moabite land. And they don't at this, in this stage of the game. They take Amorite land and land that the Amorites have stolen from the Moabites. But they fight the king of Sion, and they completely destroy him. And, and, and they're battling through. Now, what I want to kind of dive into, and I know I'm jumping quickly, and I'm hoping you can go ahead and read uh, the text here. But there's a fascinating portion of this. So Sion comes down, and they defeat him. And then they start recounting a song that they have. It says, Wherefore they that speak in Proverbs say, Come into Heshbon, let the city of Zion be built and prepared, for there is a fire gone out of Heshbon, a flame from the city of Zion, and hath consumed Ar of Moab, and the lords of the high places of Arnon. Woe to thee, Moab! Thou art undone, O people of Shemas. He hath given his sons that escaped and his daughters into captivity unto Sion, king of the Amorites. We have shot at them. Heshbon has perished even unto Nabon, and we have laid them waste even unto Nabah, which reacheth unto Medeba. Thus Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites. In other words, they took their song about how they defeated Moab, and they just tucked a little phrase in the end and said, you beat the Moabites and we beat you. To summarize it in a paraphrase. That's kind of important. Where does that come back up? If you were here for the series of judges, what judge has to deal with this same history again? Now, all you have to go back and listen to the whole Judges series to find out what that it is. It's Jephthah, right? The Moabites come in and say, you stole our land. And, and he says, no, we beat Sion who took your land. We didn't take land from you. We beat the Amorites who took land from you. This has been our land. If you had a gripe, you should have complained the last 300 years. That goes all the way back to now is when he takes it. And notice that the proverb is providentially tucked right here in God's word. So when they're reading the Torah hundreds of years later, how hard was it for Jephthah to know that, yeah, the Moabites are complaining about land that the Amorites took from them, that they got from the Amorites? Well, it's right in God's word. The, bat, the, the answer is provided. Well, the people keep going up, and I crop the map. You go up to Eldea, and there they encounter Og of Bashan, which is even further north, who comes down to fight them, and they crush Og and take his land as well. 
And what we have is these two victory narratives around an old proverb and a victory song from the Amorites tied to a victory song now sung by Israel, both depicting historical facts, which, as I mentioned, are used by Jephthah to prove they own the land. But what we get in Sion and Og is a picture of possession. This is not Canaan. But now they're occupying land. God is giving them ownership. This is the first battle where they own the land now. And they ultimately, portions of the tribe will inhabit those cities and develop them. And so this is now a picture of possession. And so what God is trying, trying what God is doing with Israel is he took them through grace. I'm going to give you victory as you see your need and my ability. And then we see how nasty Israel can still be. And God gave them the perfect picture of what faith and salvation look like. And then he gives them this rapid advance up. And then he gives them possession of the land at the top. And what we realize is that they're going to have the conquest of the land. It's a significant symbol of their coming reality. They would possess the land. They would take ownership. They would beat the giants that the spies ran from. Og, by the way, was a descendant of giants. And so the spies ran from the giants and the people. They got defeated in Hormah. God has given them complete victory and destruction in Hormah. He has erased that loss. He has dealt with their sin of grumbling and gotten them to realize the individual nature of the consequence and the individual nature of the solution. He's then moved them providentially all the way up, given them victory as a warrior, given them water through the well. Then he's given them victory over the Amorites, and we're starting to see possession. And then the last person they beat is Og, who is a giant, and giants are who they were afraid of fighting to begin with. And so chapter 21 is God putting a picture in front of Israel and saying, I'm going to fulfill my promise. I'm going to do what I said. I'm going to come through. I am dependable. And so as we move onto the plains of Moab, which is where we're going to finish the book of Numbers, Israel is now seeing a picture of what God is providing. Israel is seeing God and his ability to overcome all circumstances and previous fears. They are seeing God and his perfect faithfulness. And that's the picture we're supposed to see as we finish up. Now, this is going to bring us to the third portion, as I mentioned at the beginning, of the book of Noah. Numbers, not Noah. Numbers. We're going to be in the plain of Moab, and we're going to walk through um, times of temptation and prophecy. We're going to dive into Balaam and his story. We're actually going to see Balaam, who is an unsaved prophet, by the way, unredeemed, dies when they kill out the Midianites. And he's going to prophesy about Christ coming. There's one of the first direct, very blatant ones there. Um, we're going to see a recounting of laws and preparation to enter officially into the promised land. Now